San Francisco is sheltering in place. Well, kinda. Italian officials contemplate extreme measures to protect hospital capacity. The first candidate vaccine goes to trial. It's been exactly two months since the first case of COVID hit the U.S., but the government is planning to deal with this pandemic for up to another 18 months. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. We may be here for a while. Officials in Turin, one of the hardest-hit regions in Italy, are contemplating denying intensive care beds to people over the age of 80 or those with serious chronic diseases. That sounds extreme, but the situation there is dire. Many hospitals uh, are nearly collapsing, and uh, the forecast for the next uh, 10 to 15 days uh, is even worse. So this situation changed completely our lives uh, in uh, little more than one week. We are... Uh, working very hard to increase our ICU capacity, but uh, we are not sure that will be enough. I want to step back and explain why Italy is where it is right now, and what it means for us here, and what we're doing to mitigate this pandemic. Because the greatest danger of COVID-19 is, and has always been, that it will overwhelm our healthcare system. COVID causes a very serious form of pneumonia, requiring an intensive care unit and a ventilator to survive in some cases. Literally, that's a machine that breathes for you. Needing a ventilator isn't that common, so hospitals don't have that many around. But COVID could cause so many people to need ICUs and ventilators all at once that we wouldn't have enough for everyone. Think about it like a levee protecting a city. If it crests high enough, it'll crash over the levee and flood the city. When we talk about flattening the curve, what we're talking about is flattening the tidal wave so that the onrush of patients doesn't breach the levee and overwhelm the hospital resources that we have to deal with it. How do we do that? That's what all this social distancing is for. If we can prevent the spread of the virus between people by preventing the amount of contact potentially infected people have with non-infected people, we can slow the spread and flatten the curve and keep the wave of patients from flooding our hospitals. But you know what's not helping? All the folks who treated last weekend like just another lovely weekend, filling bars and clubs and public spaces... Like this bro, who was interviewed enjoying his spring break at a beach in Florida. We're not really like at, like at risk of dying, necessarily. So, I mean, elderly and all, they were more at risk. So then just have them stay inside. Like, I mean, if they had to come out, like, just to the beaches. Because like, we're at the beaches and stuff. You could avoid the beaches. Dude, that is super irresponsible. New data out of South Korea can help us understand why. South Korea is one of the few countries doing anything close to universal testing. That's different from what they're doing in, say, Italy or the U.S., where they're only testing people who have symptoms. South Korea found a major spike in young people, which makes sense because young people are the ones who are most active and tend to mix the most with others. But other countries typically test only people showing symptoms, so by and large, they're not picking up this spike. What that means is that there's probably a lot of young people who get the disease, who don't show symptoms, don't get tested but are still likely to spread it. Makes you think a little bit different about Beach Bro. But that guy's just trying to enjoy his spring break. He's not a world leader. This guy, the UK's chief science advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, is. The vast majority of people get a mild illness to build up some degree of herd immunity as well so that more people are immune to this disease and we reduce the transmission. At the same time, we protect those who are most vulnerable from it. For a minute... Top officials in the UK were spreading the ridiculous idea that herd immunity is going to solve this for us. First, 
let me explain what herd immunity is, because it's a good thing. If you remember way back to episode one in the first season, we talked about herd immunity when we dissected the anti-vaxxer craze. The truth is, not everyone can get vaccinated. And there lies one of the most important functions of vaccines. They don't just protect people who get them, they protect the very people who can't. That protection happens because of a process called herd immunity. Herd immunity, which I think is better called collective immunity, is the immunity you get simply because of the people around you. Here's how it works. You can only get the disease from other people who have the disease. If people around you are immune, they can't give it to you, which means that because they're immune, your likelihood of getting the disease goes down too. The more immunity around you, the lower your likelihood of disease. Boom, herd immunity. The reason we usually talk about herd immunity with vaccines is because if you vaccinate enough people, even people who can't get vaccinated, like people who have suppressed immune systems, are protected. But there is no vaccine for COVID-19. So how do folks want us to develop herd immunity, you ask? They want us to wait for people to get the disease and then develop natural immunity that way. Uh, what? That's nuts. Why? Because the epidemiology tells us that we'd need between 50 to 60% of people to get the disease for herd immunity to take hold. If 50% of the 350 million people in America got it, assuming a mortality rate on the low end, say 1%, that would mean that about 1.75 million people would die before we got herd immunity. That kind of defeats the purpose, no? But there has been progress. Just this week, trials started on a new vaccine. Vaccine trials happen in three phases. Phases one and two test various doses on healthy adult volunteers to look for any dangerous side effects and to test whether or not the vaccine has the intended effect on our biology. In this trial, they're testing the new candidate vaccine on 45 healthy adults but the trial won't end for another mm, 14 months, and that's just phase one. So while this is a piece of welcome news, it doesn't mean that a vaccine is just around the corner. In fact, experts expect that this could take 18 months, and that's why the government is planning for a scenario that could last us that long. And it could mean, quote-unquote, multiple waves of social distancing. Which forces us to ask, how did we get here? I'll talk to Ben Rhodes former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama, and we'll talk about the global health response to pandemics and what the consequences of this pandemic might be for our country's standing in the world. All right, I'm excited today to be joined by Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama. You were involved in a number of um, epidemic responses. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience in the Obama administration on global public health? Sure. Um, I mean, the, the two that stood out for us were uh, H1N1 in 2009, um, towards the beginning of the administration, mm -hmm. and then uh, the Ebola outbreak in 2014, which uh, is more recent uh, and you know, more top of my mind these days. And, you know, uh, just by way of introduction, what I'd say is that, uh, you know, President Obama used to get asked this question a lot um, about what keeps him up at night. And I think people assumed that he would say, oh, it's a potential for a terrorist attack or um, some kind of nuclear threat. Um, but he would always, always answer that it was a global pandemic, that that was the thing he was mm -hmm. most afraid of as, as president. And I think that was informed by both of those experiences where we you know, substantially avoided the worst case outcomes, but were forced to at least consider what a worst case outcome would look like. Um, and particularly after Ebola, 
um, you know, drew a, n- a number of lessons to try to set up an infrastructure to allow the government to be able to deal with uh, a pandemic. Um, but um, again, I mean, the, the principal lessons for, for me from those experiences were you have to get in front of this thing. You have to move faster than you think is fast at the time. You have to really listen and empower completely the experts. Um, and you need to work with uh, a lot of other actors, both state and local governments in the United States and uh, other governments around the world to have a shot at, at a good response. And it's an incredibly mm-hmm. complicated, high stakes thing to do. Mm-hmm. So put me in your mind, you know, you're um, in this uh, extremely powerful uh, global response and engagement role uh, in the White House. And you hear that there is an outbreak of a new pathogen out of Wuhan, China. What is the first set of things that you're thinking through? Well, I think the first thing that you want to do is, uh, number one, call in the experts, right? So bring in people like uh, Tony Fauci, bring in the CDC director, uh, and and get get from them their initial understanding of what's taken place. Mm -hmm. I think the second Mm -hmm. thing you want to do is you want to, as fast as possible, begin coordinating your own response with China's. Um, so you want to get mm. American personnel on the ground there. You want to have American capacity to test uh, what this pathogen is. Um, and then, you know, you want to start sitting down with your own people to think about what precautions do we have to take to both uh, try to contain this from coming here, uh, but to be prepared for it to come. And so you have to see something that is taking place in Wuhan, China, that is way off uh, your radar screen, that is not something that you want to be dealing with. Uh, and you have to treat it like it's happening in the United States, because the nature mm-hmm. of our global economy is that something that begins in Wuhan, China, is not going to stay there. It's going to come here because of travel patterns, because of supply chains. Um, and so from the from the first day you get that report, you have to, to act like this could become a pandemic in the United States. And so you're fighting the fire where it is. And I know that your administration did an incredible job really focusing on keeping the conversation lines open, but obviously this happened in the context of a global trade war with China. How do you think that affected our ability to actually get American boots on the ground um, and our scientists engage on this issue while it was over there? Well, I think there were a a few things that negatively affected uh, our capacity to respond. First and foremost, uh, we had set up after the Ebola outbreak uh, a directorate at the National Security Council at the White House focused on global health security and bio threats. Um, And this Mm -hmm. seems bureaucratic, but the reason it's so important is there's only a few hundred people on the White House staff, and personnel Mm -hmm. becomes priority. If you don't have people who think it's the most important thing in the world that this is happening in Wuhan, China, then you're not going to have people working around the clock on this at the White House with the right expertise. And you're not going to have the right lines out into our own government agencies to deal with uh, the experts that we need to bring on board. So the first problem they had is that they... Trump closed that office. He closed that that mm. staffing at the National Security Council in 2018. So they literally went into this without any White House staff uh, in a dedicated office focused on this potential contingency. I think sec- so, so. Basically, yeah. the White House the the White House had canned its ability to respond to a global infectious disease threat from the very outset, and so the people who you would wanted there to handle this thing just were were AWOL. 
They, they, they would literally had their uh, positions eliminated. Um, and, and I don't, mm. I don't, it's really not a, meant to be, you know, like a partisan dig. I just think people can understand how important this is because if you don't have that staffing, you're counting on somebody else to do this at the White House. And, and I can't imagine yeah. that President Trump was doing this. Who, who is it at the White House that's seeing this and responding to it and acting on it as if it's their absolute number one priority? You need people who both can get on the phone to the World Health Organization and know who the leading infectious disease experts are in China and people mm-hmm. who know what the infrastructure is in the United States and how to get on the phone with the CDC. Mm-hmm. You need to straddle this foreign domestic divide to have a response. Uh, and they had literally eliminated that capacity at the White House. Um, mm. I, I think beyond that, you know, China reacted to this initially very poorly uh, in a very kind of authoritarian manner, seeking to downplay the threat, uh, probably worried about reporting bad news, worried about potential market effects. And so China lost some time, um, you know, clearly uh, dragging its feet uh, before revealing the full scope of this. And, and people may remember you know, that doctor in China who was warning about this and raising the alarm mm-hmm. bells, and he actually died uh, of the coronavirus. Um, in that window, when you saw China doing that, uh, I would like to think that the United States would be able to be calling them and having a no-bullshit conversation about, what are you guys mm-hmm. doing? What are you seeing? Um, I don't know whether that happened or not, to tell you the truth, uh, but, but I would have been urging China both to let U.S. experts in to get on the ground, which eventually happened in this case, but I don't know if it could have happened earlier. Um, but also, frankly, speaking candidly to them in private, uh, perhaps at the presidential level, to say, hey, look, yeah. we have to take this seriously. Uh, and, and, and I have to think that some of the tensions between the U.S. and China in recent years, at a minimum, made that a little more difficult. Hmm. I know that um, the, the World Health Organization came under a lot of scrutiny during the Ebola epidemic. And um, one of the goals uh, in the post-Ebola world was to empower that organization. Uh, how do you feel like its response um, has measured up to the challenge? And um, d- what more do we need to do to empower the WHO to do the kind of work that it uni- uniquely can do as a coordinating apparatus with a focus on public health? You know, I, I think on the one hand, um, they, they have been good in the sense that, uh, particularly in the last several weeks, they have been out in front of most governments um, in their warning and uh, the advice that they're giving. Um, they uh, have been, uh, you know, a vehicle for information about uh, the coronavirus. They've been a source of sharing best practices. So if one country is learning that something works, uh, that can be shared with others. Uh, so, you know, the, the essential kind of clearinghouse and coordinating mechanism in the global health infrastructure, I think they've basically been able to do that. The shortfall, though, to be blunt, is any one of these international organizations is only as strong as the support it gets from the major powers around the world, right? And so mm. uh, people don't understand the United States really drives the engine of this infrastructure around the world. Um, even if we're not directly running the World Health Organization, in Ebola, we essentially took charge of the Ebola response um, and worked hand in glove with the World Health Organization uh, and then mm. sought to kind of nest some of the lessons that we learned in the, in the WHO. But let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Um, in order to stop the outbreak in West Africa of Ebola in 2014, the United States deployed several thousand U.S. troops to West Africa to build an infrastructure to both 
handle the inflow of health supplies and healthcare workers, to set up potential mobile healthcare units, and to essentially kind of create the template that other countries could plug into, sending uh, supplies and assistance and healthcare workers to fight this disease in West Africa so its spread was minimal outside of Africa. The WHO cannot do that. <laughs> you know, the WHO, you know, to quote the, the old cliche, you know, how many divisions does the Pope has, the, the WHO doesn't have the resources to do that kind of thing. They have expertise, yeah. they have some resources, they can be a resource. So uh, again, I, I think they've, they've, they've done a, a good job at being kind of the leading source of information globally. They can't really force countries to do things or marshal resources. And that's why I really do think this kind of you know, absence of US leadership is, is so pronounced because if I were to ask you, Abdul, like who's been running this for the world? Like who's the most prominent voice in the world on the coronavirus? There's no answer. And we've got a president right now, you know, interestingly enough, uh, who ran on this idea of America first. And, you know, we all know the the long history, very troubling history of that set of statements and who've used it before. But it strikes me that this notion of America first is, is particularly problematic when the world's problems hit us and hit us hard. Um, and we find ourselves without the ability to actually deal with them. Um, I'm wondering, you know, his response um, has really focused on implicitly otherizing or foreignizing uh, this disease. You, you see um, his allies calling it a foreign, foreign virus or, or the Wuhan virus, um, even though you know, viruses don't carry passports. Um, I'm wondering how that attitude and you know, the set of travel bans, particularly the one uh, on, um, on, on Europe um, in the Schengen zone, uh, how has that influenced our ability to, uh, to interact with our global counterparts uh, in a productive way, given what you just said about the responsibility uh, to be able to coordinate a response at the international level? Well, I, you're exactly right to focus on this. And I think that, first of all, America first, uh, <laughs> besides from all the the kind of very troubling r racist and even fascistic echoes from history, if mm. you were to be friendly to it, to that phrase, if you're going to cast it in the most generous way, you'd say he's putting a focus on U.S. sovereignty, you know, and, and, and dealing with things within our own borders. The problem with that is America is a hyper-connected nation. Um, mm. we, we, we are at the hub of a global supply chain of goods and people that moves around. And so putting aside other threats, you, you can't potentially, you, there's no way on earth that you can throw up walls uh, that keep a virus out. Uh, and if something happens, you know, China and the U.S. are the two hubs of the global economy. So it's not surprising that something happens in China is going to hit here hard. Um, and it's, notably, the other places it's hit are kind of tourist hubs where Americans and Chinese people mm -hmm. go, like Italy uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and France. Um, and so I, I, the mindset just is totally out of whack for the reality of the threat posed by something like a global pandemic. Now, his instincts also are less to try to coordinate internationally and more, I mean, obviously they've been focused on his political interest and trying to keep the markets down. But even if you look at the pandemic response itself, okay, out of the gate, you want to restrict travel from China. I think that's a smart thing. Things have not yet spread. You want to see if you can contain the disease at its source. The problem is when he announced a European travel ban, it made absolutely no sense because 
this horse is already out of the barn and shutting the barn door mm-hmm. isn't going to do anything. And as we saw, what it did do is kind of breed chaos, uh, have packed airports on our side. He clearly announced something he wasn't prepared uh, to manage. The government wasn't prepared to manage. And, and I don't think it added to, to what we needed, which was more testing and more health infrastructure in this country. And it probably had both market disruptions, uh, put people into dangerous situations in crowded airports, uh, and just wasn't thought through. It, it was a good sign of what happens when you're trying to deal with a global outbreak in a manner that thinks that borders matter <laughs> um, when they, they really don't. Because uh, what you should be doing, Abdul, is trying to bring the level of response up everywhere, right? And so yeah. the more that the European countries are working to flatten the curve and to, to slow the spread of this disease, the better it is for us. It's better for us for Europe to get this thing under control than it is to shut down travel from Europe to the United States. Um, and, and what's really striking in watching this globally is every country seems to be doing its own thing. And there's not like yeah. a de- dedicated effort to say, let's do the same thing everywhere. If you had the same protocols in place, the same social distancing measures, a sharing of information, a, a surging of test capacities, uh, like a, a pooling and, and, and bo- boosting of, of, of health infrastructure, uh, be it beds or respirators or what have you, we would all be better off. And yet, because the America first mindset kind of is, is the, the global mindset these days, everybody is looking inward, um, we're unable to have that coordinated response. And, and yeah. you know, ultimately, people are going to travel here. You can't shut that down. Well, Ben, uh, we really, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to educate us here about the global implications uh, of both um, this pandemic and our response to it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you and your family are um, are waiting this out? Yeah, I mean, we're probably like everybody else. I've got a three-year-old and five-year-old daughter, um, and mm. their schools are canceled, and you know, we are you know, very dramatically limiting our interaction with anybody, um, largely staying home or just taking walks in open air uh, spaces. Um, we have a lot of food um, and, and, you know, taking precautions and, and, and planning, you know, for the worst case scenario, hoping that that isn't what happens. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah. p- put it this way, though, the the screen time is up in my house, Abdul. I, I don't. <laughs> my capacity to entertain my kids uh, for full days uh, is more limited than I thought. There you go. Uh, well, stay safe. We're wishing you and your family the best, and um, really, really appreciate your time uh, in, in in challenging times and, uh, and 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 your insights into how to think about the global response here. Um, that was uh, Ben Rhodes, Deputy National Security Advisor uh, for President Obama. Uh, ben, thank you again. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you. By the way, be sure to check out his show, Pod Save the World, with Tommy Vitor. They've been discussing the global response to this pandemic each week, as well as the geopolitics at play. As always, before we go, I want to share with you what I'm watching for right now. First, our healthcare system, the levy protecting us, has the potential to be overwhelmed by COVID-19. Can we build it higher? That'll mean a massive wartime mobilization to build the hospitals, manufacture the ventilators, train the personnel. We'll need to take this thing on. On Wednesday, the president activated the Defense Production Act of 1950. It's a holdover from the Korean War that allows him to force industry into production of war materiel. In this case, it would mean ventilators, personal protective equipment, and other supplies. In response, GM and Ford began looking into how to retool some of their factories to manufacture ventilators. Just how big will the effort be, 
and will they ramp up in time? Stocks are reeling because the economy, premised on people buying and selling stuff to each other, is collapsing. There seems to be consensus on the need to protect folks on the margins of the economy by literally giving them money, a basic income. But will politics get in the way? And lastly, as we spend more time adjusting to the reality of social distancing, what will it mean for how we cope, together if apart? That's all for today. But if you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. We're supporting the organizations who are supporting the people hardest hit by the coronavirus crisis. You can find more details on the donation page. Again, that's crooked.com coronavirus. We'll look forward to seeing you on Tuesday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Katie Long is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takeyasuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.